0: Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou.
1: And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 8 Wishful Thinking. Let's get this show on the road. (sighs) I'll be honest, my first note, maybe like five, six minutes into this episode uh, after the initial like ghost encounter and the actual like the brothers doing anything. I thought we were getting the trickster again, I'll be honest.
0: (laughs) I can imagine that. Yeah, this was definitely a funny one.
1: The number of interactions between Sam and Dean that were just like the two of them like awestruck, like. Maybe it is Bigfoot. Like, how do you explain otherwise?
0: <laughs> it's it's interesting because it sort of like makes them face the unexplainable, even for them, which is really funny in and of itself.
1: Which I think is what brings so much humor to the tricksters, first episode, especially in the fact that it was like it's so you've built a world that has, yes, a set of rules we're constantly learning from. I still would not expect them to come across the Loch Ness monster or a Sasquatch. Like those are like far enough in the like, you know, mythos that I'm like, those those aren't going to be a thing. Or like if they're done, they'll be done in a really weird way. It's not just going to be the Bigfoot ran into the liquor store and stole the boo, the the very girly booze, as uh, Dean puts it, uh, and some porno mags.
0: Honestly, I have to say that this is probably one of my favorite iterations of a filler episode for Supernatural.
1: I think I can just say from our note taking on this one, we were definitely um, trying hard.
0: (laughs) I don't know that I tried any harder than the other ones, but I definitely have less. And that will be shown in the long game. For now, shall we go to the recap?
1: Count me down.
0: Three, two, one, go.
1: We have a really bizarre ghost experience that looks like something out of the movie Psycho. Brothers get a call. There's a ghost. They go, sure, why not? They go to the small town look into this ghost encounter, things aren't really adding up and they're kind of that weird like, ooh, something's weird here. And then we find out that um, through some investigation that it's a wishing well, a magical coin tossed into a well that makes any wish made on the well come true. So we've got parents disappearing to, you know, tropical paradise. We have giant evil teddy bears that are not evil, but just really messed up and scary who try to, you know, off themselves in horrible ways. Oh God, the fluff. We have romances. We have super strength. It's weird, it's a bizarre episode, but ultimately they deal with it and there really isn't much else to it. Time?
0: (laughs) That's what it is.
1: (laughs) There's virtually no lasting consequences to this episode. When you talk about a filler episode normally, it's like nothing really of consequence happens, but like the world still moves on. This almost feels like a big old reset button was hit by the end of it.
0: And I have some thoughts about that, actually.
1: With that bumbly recap out of the way... Was there anything in the long game for this episode?
0: Well, there are a couple of things that I think we should definitely kind of note and keep in mind as we go further. So we find out that Dean remembers hell.
1: I actually forgot about that till right now. Really? Not not the fact that we learn that about Dean, but just that it's like in my head that that conversation has happened. It just doesn't connect with the episode with the giant talking teddy bear in my head.
0: I also think that we've talked about how we know that he remembers hell, right? From previous conversations, from the flashbacks, from this, from that. I think that this is just notable because he opens up to Sam about it.
1: Again, what is it with shows taking like filler episodes and just leaving like one little nugget of like, oh, massive development here?
0: It was a choice. (laughs) It really feels
1: like they had like the like the episode, like the season, like lined up. okay on this episode, we have to reveal this because we need to have it ready before this happens. And they're like, cool. So no matter what the episode is, we're going to bring up this fact at the end of it. And then like just by pure happenstance, it was this episode.
0: Maybe that's what it was, honestly. But I'm not mad about it because this is like something super heavy. It feels like a way to make sure that we're not too down already by the time we hear it. So I feel like it helps soften the blow a little bit, right?
1: No, I I can definitely see that. And I agree.
0: We're also finding out that Dean is drinking again as a coping mechanism. I can't quite remember now, but I think that the last time that this happened was when John died and when he was trying to deal with John's last words to him.
1: Yeah, that's the last real major um, seeing Dean drink a lot that I can recall.
0: And uh, that's it for the long game. That was the shortest game, the short game.
1: I was gonna beat you to that damn pun, but you win.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, with the short
1: game out of the way, let's uh, head over to story time, where hopefully we get a little more uh, juice.
0: So today our theme is dignity, and what comes to mind when you think of the word dignity?
1: Unfortunately, a scene from The Simpsons about playing Pictionary. Anyone who knows the episode know what I'm talking about. On a more serious note. To me, always kind of paralleled with the, the idea of pride. I feel like it's weird because I feel like pride, you think of the seven sins and it's like, you know, it's too much. But I think dignity is when you have pride in something and you don't it doesn't become your entire character or it doesn't take over or it doesn't become exaggerated. Like you can have dignity, but if you take it too far, you then become prideful, if that makes any sense.
0: It is the exact meaning of dignity. So dignity comes from the Latin dignus, which means worthy. And the meaning of it really has to do with what I called here in my notes, warranted pride, which you could also think of respect and particularly self-respect. So you are respectful of yourself and therefore you behave with dignity. You carry yourself with dignity.
1: Wow, I'm, one, very impressed that my, like, self-realization version of Dignity was actually that close to the truth. I love the way you worded that, actually. That's really well said. And that actually clears it up quite a bit for me in my own mind.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Great. We're done. Bye.
1: (laughs) You've been listening, to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. The one thing, though, when I was thinking about dignity is that I was sort of wrecking my brain just to try to find a word that would be the opposite of that, because I feel like there's a lot of that that happens in this episode, you know, like the opposite of dignity happens a lot in this episode.
1: There are certain characters who would be the personification of the opposite of dignity.
0: So I was thinking of like feeling mortified or or feeling humiliated, which is... What we see most characters feeling, really, throughout the episode, and they're trying to restore their dignity through their wishes.
1: When we were preparing for this episode, I had dignity in mind and I saw that you were looking for an opposite. And I racked my brain for a while and nothing really came. But I feel like I almost want to take your example of what did you describe it as as pride? It was
0: self-warranted pride and self-respect.
1: I feel the opposite of dignity would be self inflicted pessimism, when you're down on yourself because of things you did, so you're almost like throwing yourself a pity party. Is that that's almost where I want to go with it. Like
0: being pitiful could be the the uh, an opposite. Yeah,
1: there's a word for the thing I was describing. Pitiful.
0: You know, at the end of the day, when you feel when you feel worthy because that's what di- what feeling dignified is the opposite is feeling unworthy. And so I think that, you know, if, if we kind of use that as a middle ground between our, our, our two interpretations, I think that we're getting somewhere.
1: You use the word worthy, and I think any Marvel listener immediately has the, uh, the inscription on Molnier running through their head like I do. And I genuinely think if I had to think of the opposite of worthy, it'd be pitiful. Like, you really... We've really worked this well together with all these. Look at look at look at language. Have fun.
0: Absolutely. Language is fun. Spelling is fun.
1: Spelling, not my forte. You know this. Nor dates, apparently. (laughs) But give me some good old etymology. Ooh, We are down on that one.
0: Let's move to the crossroads and let's talk about the main choice that each brother makes in this episode.
1: Shall we start with Sam?
0: I find it really interesting That Sam is in the entire episode, but I'm really having a hard time finding a choice that he makes that influences the episode. And I would argue to some degree that it's kind of the same for Dean. Like, it feels like a lot of it is out of their control in this episode.
1: They're they're weirdly like, they're like passengers in this episode.
0: Exactly. They're along for the ride and they're just kind of hoping that it ends well. And that's... Luckily, it does because of reasons, but there you go. So I feel like we really do need to dig a little deeper when it comes to Sam. And I think I want to talk about what he says he wishes. He says that he would like to have Lilith's head on a stick. I think that this is really revealing something about Sam. Because like, if we go back to season one, he was arguing with Dean that he didn't really actually want to seek revenge from Azazel and that it wouldn't bring back their mom. And I felt like that felt really mature and dignified of him back then. But here, not only is he saying he wants Lilith dead, he's giving like a really gruesome description of it. And it really has that feeling and that quality of him having thought about this before and like imagined it, you know, like he's smiling and smirking as he's saying that. And Dean really reacts to that, too, you know, like kind of like we do, where he's like, oh, okay, all right. Um, Not exactly what I was expecting. I'll end with this about this, but like, I think that it's really important here to to mention that seeking justice is usually in the pursuit of restoring dignity. But what Sam is expressing here feels much more like revenge, which I really see as undignified, because to me, anyway, like there is no self-respect and revenge.
1: The first time we kind of get a real departure from season one, Sam. I mean, he is very passive in this episode. He doesn't re- even do the research like he lets Dean do the research, which seems incredibly backwards out of place.
0: Very true.
1: Cool that he did, but like weird. And it also feels weird that his most defining moment in this episode and the only choice he really makes is, like you said, that hypothetical wish to see Lilith murderized in a most gruesome of ways and while the choice isn't really impactful it really helps kind of paint the picture of what Sam has become I mean he was this dignified character and we're now kind of seeing this darker side to him and with all the discussion of like oh using your demon powers are bad and they could lead to the dark side we're now get. he's saying everything's fine, but this is a darker Sam. I don't necessarily think they're a uh, direct correlation, I think it's more coincidence, but still, we're starting to paint this new picture of dark Sam who believes he is on a mission to f- defeat Lilith, kind of like John was on a mission to defeat Azazel. And uh, we can all say, uh, John was Mr. Dignity, wasn't he?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I really think, I agree with you. I think that especially his time without Dean, but particularly his time anticipating Dean's death. You know, in season three, we had a lot of Sam being like, I have to be ready for when you're gone. I have to become more like, more like you. And then Ruby saying that she needs to prepare Sam for when Dean won't be around anymore. So I think that all of that really created some some cracks in sam's character and i think that we're seeing this right in this moment
1: i think this is the biggest step we've had i feel like everything sam has done from season one till now including season three where we're kind of seeing this taking on some of the Deanisms of you know getting stuff done this is the first time we're really seeing a Massive step forward away from the Sam we knew versus this very light trickle we were getting.
0: Because Dean was never bloodthirsty like that. That's not only Sam being more like Dean, that's Sam like taking it many steps further as well. It's a departure from what he was aiming for.
1: While we had Sam slowly absorbing little bits of Deanisms and catching up to Dean in the attitude, he's now surpassed Dean into the I'm now hunting for revenge sake versus I'm hunting to help people's sake. Ooh, I'm very worried for Sam this season. I feel like this is going to be an unhappy ending this season with Sam. I'm
0: trying not to look at you as you say this. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about Dean?
1: I mean, even though it's in my notes, that's how d- distant this episode feels to me. Yeah, it's pretty hard to pick something that Dean did this episode uh, as far as choices go. That wasn't the admitting to Sam that he knows... Uh, He remembers all of hell. I mean, it's a powerful choice to admit this to anyone, even family. Trauma is a hard thing to face. And while he also chooses to keep it private beyond just admitting that he does remember, he is protecting himself. He's trying to save face. He still feels that being too emotional will hurt his image or his status, which I feel is both kind of like to society, but also more in Sam's eyes. I think there's this like there's this level of what he presents to Sam even if he knows Sam can see through it sometimes but he puts on this like facade for Sam of like I don't do emotions. So to have him break that, to talk to break down to Sam without being pushed for it is strong.
0: Do you think the facade is for Sam or for Dean?
1: I think it's for Dean. I feel like there's a part of Dean that knows it's not working on Sam, but he keeps it up anyways for himself. So he can tell himself the lie. Almost like we discussed a few weeks ago, lying to someone else to lie to yourself.
0: You know, I think I would almost take this also a step further from what you were saying. And I think that the important choice that he makes here is not only saying that he remembers hell, but also that he doesn't want to talk about it. And and i think that putting that boundary is a very brave thing to do as well and it shows a lot of self-respect and it's very dignified of him to do to be both transparent with his brother and to set clear boundaries with him because i know that like conventional wisdom is to say that talking about something is going to make you feel better and and you know by and large that's usually true but when you're talking about trauma and in his case it's literal hell it needs to be on the terms of the person who suffered the trauma. And in this case, it's on Dean's terms. So like for him to have some kind of control of like when, where, how, how much and to who he talks about his trauma is part of the process of healing and restoring his own dignity.
1: That's really well said. It's yeah, the setting boundaries part, I think really is what stuck with me the most. Because it would be so easy just to have from to break story for a moment to kind of go from the writings. I just have Dean admit things or like spill his guts. And we've seen this before where he kind of just gives information out and then it sort of just ends the episode that way. And the next episode starts without it really meaning anything. But having him give this information, which we as an audience already know. So it's really only for Sam's sake, but then set that limitation, which keeps us on par with Sam versus taking us in with Sam to another step. It, it is a very dignified move. It really puts Dean in this position of power and vulnerability, which are in a really odd balance in a situation like this, I feel, but he is, he has balanced them so well. I feel like there's so much, you know, what it is with dignity is there's so much to be balanced in dignity. It's not just, you know, like we said, like or I said, at least is how part of dignity is your pride but too much pride is a sin. It's it's finding that balance. And I feel like this is the perfect balance of sharing and being open, but also being restricted and understanding your boundaries and your limits.
0: Well, yeah, because he has the understanding that he needs to be, he needs to tell Sam because clearly it's creating a rift between them. So he understands that need, but he also understands his own need of distance somehow, Right. To recognize both of those things, I think, for Dean is, is really, really wonderful and really great. And I was very proud of him this episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. For someone who we've critiqued in the past for not really being able to deal with his emotions or his his traumas in a healthy manner, this is impressive. Like, good for Dean.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was very proud of Dean. Good job. So I feel like in this episode, the theme shows up a lot more through the supporting characters than through the brothers. So maybe we can look at some of the characters who've had their wish granted and see sort of like how dignity fits into their story.
1: I weirdly think of all three, uh, technically, no, how many, how many wishes we really deal with? We have Audrey and the bear. We have super strength Todd. We have Wes's romance. And then we have creepy invisible kid.
0: We have the Invisible Kid. Yeah, it's true. We have the Invisible Kid. We have Dean's Meatball Sub, uh, or I can't remember exactly what it is, and the parents' uh, trip to Bali.
1: Yes, Bali, that's where it was. Okay, so we do have a few, but I feel like we only really encounter Audrey, Todd, Wes, and I feel like Creepy Boy has to have a name, Invisible Kid.
0: That's so true. He doesn't even have a name. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. But I mean, I don't think they say it. I don't think they say his name.
1: Very possible. Uh, but I would say, though, I think the most dignified of all of them is Audrey.
0: Right. I think I, I agree. I, I think that the the undignifiedness shows up mostly through her bear.
1: Like to us, it's clear this is a wish turned wrong monkey paw style, like every story and legend. But she still has this level of like. Maybe it's childness wonder that she's like, no, 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 this is okay. He just needs a doctor and he'll be better. This isn't something went wrong. This is he just needs help and I want him to get the help, which is someone recognizing someone else's need for support and trying their best to find them the support. Like she doesn't turn him in for stealing the booze and porno. She returns it with an I'm sorry note. Like she wants to protect his image as well.
0: Well, I mean, I think Audrey kind of shows a lot of really wonderful harm reduction actions. You know, she, like you said, she she wants to get him help. She returns the stuff. She then lets the boys, you know, handle it. She then herself goes to stay with someone else. And I just think that that, again, is very dignified in and of itself.
1: Now, if I can move to Todd for a second, who is the most adorable thing ever, and I wanted to just give him a big hug. Uh, oh, my God. When he when he when when he's in the streets just yelling, I am Todd. I was dying. Such a cutie. But the fact that he feels he needs physical strength rather than emotional strength, which, again, for a child that young, it makes sense. When most of the idols you have are the Supermans of the world, you see super strength. He can beat up the bad guys. These guys are bad guys. only beat them up, too. It's like really easy child logic, but I feel like the adult version of Todd, if this was happening to someone a bit older and more mature and more intelligent and didn't have magic wishing powers, what they would really need is the emotional strength to get past it to to I'm trying to word this delicately and politely because, again, bullying is a real problem. And I'm never going to say just ignore your bullies and move away. Like, no, no, bullies have to be dealt with but you need to deal with them the right way. And generally violence is not the answer. And I think that's the point I'm trying to get here is the dignified move would be to find a way around it, find a way through it. And again, being that young, being a child and again, your idols being superheroes and now having a magical witch fountain, this is the result we get. And that's, I think what Dean is trying to instill in a little bit at the very end when he kind of like fake cowers and runs away, he's trying to show him that you can still have power without having powers. And I think that's a really cute message.
0: I think you're uncovering something that's really important when it comes to wishes. is that a lot of the time you wish for what you want, but what you want is not always what you need.
1: Ooh, very well put.
0: Sometimes I'm like sort of wishing for the things I want, but at the same time, I'm like, I wish for the things I need. And sometimes that comes in the form of something that is not desirable, but it's there for you and it's what you needed.
1: You can't always get what you want to, but sometimes you can get what you need.
0: Previous philosophers said this already, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, a certain philosopher. Uh,
0: I mean, I, I think I think music is philosophy.
1: Exactly. Lastly, I'll be really honest. I wrote this sentence about Wes. I'm going to read it verbatim. And then it occurred to me I was writing about Wes and not the invisible kid. But the sentence works the exact same. I think this might be our best description for opposite of dignity. Relying on magic because he has no self-worth. And that describes both of them way too well.
0: I think what's particularly upsetting about Wes and Invisible Boy is that their wishes are exploitative. Audrey's wish, even the parents' wish, Dean's wish, even Todd to a certain degree. It doesn't come directly at the detriment of somebody else. Technically Invisible Boy, neither, but he uses it in an exploitative manner. Because if I was Invisible, I would just sneak into concerts, frankly. That's what I would do, right? Like events and stuff. That's what I would do if I was Invisible. Would not be hanging out in Showers for to watch people.
1: Okay, I would hang out in showers, but specifically to play really cool ghost pranks, like putting (laughs) a handprint or writing a silly message on the wall. It would not be for creeping. It would be like (laughs) I would break into my friend's place while they were showering, not to look or see, but like leave a message in the mirror of something like, Remember to get the milk tomorrow, and just leave them completely baffled.
0: Being invisible isn't per se exploitative, but Invisible Boy definitely uses it in in an exploitative way. And I think Wes's wish is particularly despicable because it comes at the at the detriment of hope.
1: You've literally I mean, as the episode ends, which I think is something we were going to touch on later, I think, is how she just completely has no recollection of this whole thing. yes. There's almost a beat where they try to make it feel like make you feel bad for Wes like oh she doesn't remember you and you're back to your old self. But like no no no, you you fully deserve this. You were awful.
0: Of course you can sympathize with Wes in the f- sense of like not feeling worthy, but uh, like I can sympathize with the feeling, but I can't sympathize with the behavior and the choices.
1: Also, I just need to bring up real quick at the end. The timeline in this episode makes no sense.
0: Oh, I mean, this is just typical Supernatural episode. Like, t- what is time? How
1: did they run over the naked kid?
0: Why was he naked on the road? <laughs> so the
1: only logic I have for that, and I've thought this through way too much, the only logical reason for him to still be naked and walking home would be he is leaving the, the whatever the dorms or the, the, the facilities are after being confronted by Sam. But that would be like multiple hours have passed. So you're telling me he just he either lives incredibly far away, which makes sense, is a really small town, or he just was out being naked and invisible for other reasons and crossing the street stupidly. Like it, it just it, yes, it's a fun joke. I'm decrypting a joke and ruining it, but it just it left me going like, really? What? Why? Besides the funny joke.
0: But again, I uh, you know if we're if we're trying to be to be generous with Invisible Boy, maybe he was just trying to like see some animals in nature by being invisible, right? Like maybe that's what was happening. I don't know. At least he wasn't in, in the showers. Had
1: the car gotten there like 20 seconds, I would have seen him like herding a bunch of baby ducks across the street, <laughs> using his invisible powers <laughs> to not scare them, but like keep the rain from like washing them away. I don't know. Maybe maybe he he turned over a new leaf and he's just, he, he could have been a superhero for all we know.
0: <laughs> there you go. Exactly.
1: I genuinely think we have sucked everything we can out of the story. I'm OK heading to critical time if you are. Absolutely. So who's behind this episode? Because um, genuinely, I, I, I'm going to say I think we I think I may have been a bit negative about it earlier. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great episode. I had so much fun.
0: It was written by my beloved Ben Edland and Lou Bolo, who, if you remember, was a stunt coordinator for the show, and he also wrote. Uh, Are you there, God? It's me, Dean Winchester, with Sarah Gamble.
1: Oh, I'm glad to see Lou making a return. i
0: It's his last one, though, I think, if I'm not mistaken.
1: (laughs) I mean, hopefully he stays on as a stunt coordinator because it's a very interesting role already. He does. But again, I love that cross-departmental, you know, ideas. I hope to see other non-traditional writers taking on partial writer credits in future episodes.
0: Ben, we love Ben. We do. I think that he writes really compelling stories. And this was a compelling story, even though there were moments that I, I liked more than others. I think it did provide some interesting discussion materials for us.
1: Yeah, I say I would say it would. And sorry, I think I interrupted you, but our director?
0: And the director is Robert Singer.
1: Oh, marvelous.
0: <laughs> All right. Would you like to delight us with some lore today?
1: It caught the light so perfectly as it twirled, tiny points of light reflecting off the uneven but polished surfaces. It was like fireflies flitting around the room, playing tag. I suppose I should have closed my eyes, which seems more traditional, but I couldn't take my eyes off the golden speck now reaching the apex of its arc. It seemed to stop a moment and just hang motionlessly like some kind of alien ship from an old sci-fi film. Then it began its final descent, gathering speed. The once figure-skater-like precision it spun with traded now for a clumsy wobble of a newborn animal. All this in the seconds it took before my coin collided with the still calm surface of the water. With that, I blinked. No longer was my little coin dancing through space for me. Now I watched rings forming on the water's surface, fleeing from the spot my coin had touched. Slowly the ripples ceased, and I was alone again. My wish was made, but only time would tell if it was granted. Unfortunately, the history of cursed, lucky, or unlucky coins is um, not too deep, uh, but I did want to take a moment to share with you an interesting story of the god of chaos, Tiamat, that is depicted on the cursed coin in this week's episode.
0: So it was a trickster. What do you mean? Oh, a god of chaos, is that not a trickster?
1: The trickster does resolve as a god of chaos.
0: Oh, shit. It was technically a trickster episode, even if it was not the trickster.
1: When we learn about Tiamat, as little as the little bit I do have here to share, you'll see some pretty heavy differences. But it's a very valid point because I feel like they are very often. Very often we we do see uh, trickster gods referred to as chaos gods. So while Tiamat would come to be seen as a sea serpent and a creator of monsters in Mesopotamian myths, she was not always that. Uh, She was actually a goddess. In fact, she was a goddess of the sea and mother to the Mesopotamian pantheon of deities. But when her husband was slain, uh, as one of the children tried to take back the throne, she turned to revenge and became the chaos creature she is sadly remembered for today. So she was a creature of beauty and dignity and control of the oceans, and then when revenge ruined her, she became an evil monster, and that's how she's remembered.
0: This is so incredibly meaningful with our episode. And that's so funny that like, I would have talked about revenge being very undignified. I didn't know that you were gonna talk about this, by the way, this is-
1: I realized like, as I was saying, I'm like, oh, that fits so well with our episode.
0: You know, I love when stuff like that happens because it kind of shows like how how deeply we think about the themes and and the choices and and the narrative structure. Of this episode, because it's backed up by like, by the literature, literally. I, I think it's so cool. I think we do. I think we do a really great job, Drew. <laughs>
1: I think we're pretty good at this. I would say we should we should keep going a little a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think we're good. let's let's continue.
1: Speaking of continuing, would you like to share anything with us today?
0: I want to talk about how bothered I am uh, by a really small detail in this episode. And we've talked about you've mentioned this briefly before, but Hope doesn't remember Wes at the end. It wouldn't bother me as much if we knew that the other people affected by the curse also didn't remember, but Todd and the other boys remembered, Dean remembered, Audrey and her parents seemed to remember, and Wes certainly remembered, so why would Hope not remember? And I really think it has to do with not wanting to deal with the fallout of Wesley and Hope being "quote unquote" in a relationship without Hope's consent, like the narrative fallout of it in the writer's room kind of thing. Like it was just easier to spend time painting Wes as like this whiny man in the back of the Impala rather than to deal with the fact that Hope never actually consented to the relationship, quote unquote, that she had with Wes. And I think that the reality is that that to me would have been a much more important conversation when it comes to this episode.
1: Agreed. It really does feel weird that like everything is reversed, but like some things are reversed differently than other things. It's like there's no uh, again, I I was saying before, there's a really lack. There's a lack of consistency in the logic behind the wishes, which is a weird sentence to say. But I think I would have liked to have seen in the tradition of our older show and our actual us making crossroads deals. I would have given up the Sam being struck by lightning and dying bit, which really seemed unnecessary Like, yes, it was to show hope under mind control was willing to kill for Wes. But like, I don't think we needed that. I would have rather get to Wes undoing the wish earlier and then having to have a fallout moment with hope where he is confronted by what he's done versus just this pity moment we get.
0: Right. And I feel like that would have been that could have been a moment of justice. Right. Where he says, like, I am so sorry for what I did. You know, how and 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 asks, how can I make it up to you? And the reality is that maybe Hope can never forgive him. And that's OK, too. Right. But I I really do think that that would have been a more meaningful conversation than basically painting Wes as an incel.
1: It really I think you put it so well when you said it really just comes across as the team didn't want to deal with it. They were like, yeah, no, that's going to be icky and gross. Let's just. She magically forgets because mind control magics. Uh Bye. Like
0: that's too hard a conversation to have on this show kind of thing, you know? Let's go listen to what our community has to say this week.
1: Yes, please.
0: This week, we have a message from Avril. But before we play it, we'd like to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail about... Where do you see dignity in Supernatural? Apart from the Lilith wish, what would Sam's wish have been this episode, and how could it have gone bad? Or to respond to something else we discussed today. You can use the recording app on your phone, and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com.
2: Hi, Marie and Drew. I'm not sure that I have a super clear thesis on what I'm trying to say here, but I hope you can bear with me while I stumble through it. Because I feel like the introduction of Castile is pretty foundational for the evolution of Dean's views on emotional vulnerability and relationships more generally. And I kind of want to try to talk about that. Dean is often characterized as emotionally stunted or withholding. And it's like, of course he is. He's not shy about it. He's a traumatized and occasionally suicidal abuse survivor. He has a lot of big feelings and the people around him are not good at receiving them because they're like 60 stories tall. And even though people are always poking at him to talk about what he's going through, when he does, he's often met with anger or shaming about how it causes pain or inconvenience to the people around him, or how it's just more evidence of his fundamental brokenness. He even lies about remembering his time in hell, despite how obviously it's breaking him down, because correctly or not, he sees his pain as an unnecessary burden to the people who love him. At the end of season three, Dean sees himself as a martyr. Self-sacrifice becomes a bit of a theme for both brothers. And to him, it's a way for his life to finally mean something, like he says to Bobby in the season premiere. In that way, refusing extraordinary measures to save himself from hell makes sense. It's too big of a risk, and if both he and Sam die, then it just makes all of it a cheap sacrifice. But Dean is also tired, he's so tired. He's told Sam and Bobby as much, even if they reject it, and he sees his death here and now as fulfilling his life's sole purpose, protecting Sam. But then we're introduced to Castiel and Lazarus rising, and the very first thing he sees and understands about Dean as an angel who doesn't understand any human emotion yet is that Dean doesn't believe he deserves to be saved. We see how Dean sees himself in Dream a Little Dream of Me. He doesn't believe he's worth the rubber the soles of his boots are made from. He's angry and he's broken, his daddy's blunt little instrument. (laughs) He spends most of season four grappling with the idea that he has any value at all. But it's maybe the first time Dean isn't met with someone scolding him for his very understandable lack of self-worth and suicidal ideation. And instead, Cast tells him that good things do happen. And there's work for him here. Throughout the season, Cass continuously tries to reinforce Dean's importance without making the fact that he doesn't already see it a point of contention. But quick tangent, can we just talk real fast about the insanity of Cass's introduction? Beyond his first line, we can add another layer to the light show in the barn, because Supernatural so often uses lights and lamps as a representation of Cass's halo and grace and general angelicness. (laughs) And then the very first time we see him as he approaches Dean, all the lights around them are shattering, falling even, you might say. okay. anyway, back to the point. Dean is able to have these 60 stories tall conversations with Cass because Cass knows about Dean's memories of hell and his past and what he went through. He can reciprocate in a meaningful way by sharing his own doubts and hesitations. There's no hiding anymore that Cass has rebuilt Dean, atom by atom, and even if Cass may not understand yet what he's seen, Dean must be keenly aware that this being, who he immediately gives a nickname which removes his godliness, might I add, for no good reason at that point, knows him like no one else. So Cass's casual acceptance of Dean as a worthy, if broken, human allows Dean to be vulnerable about his inner world in a way we haven't seen. Maybe since Hendrickson last season? Sorry, I had to say it. And the thing is, until Cass pulled Dean from hell, he was a loyal, unquestioning, uncorrupted soldier of God for eons. And despite everything Cass saw, or rather because of it, it doesn't take long for Cass to decide that this man, of all of humanity, in all of space and time, this man is who allows him to feel for the first time, to think for himself, to doubt, He pushes back against orders and plans for the first time because he sees the weight on Dean's shoulders. And instead of saying, like so many others, Dean is strong, Dean can handle this, Cass wonders why he has to carry it at all, let alone by himself. So I suppose my point in all of this is that the introduction of Cass gives Dean maybe his first example of unconditional love, or at least unconditional care. That's outside of an existing familial bond, which Dean associates with duty and mandatory unconditional love rather than one that's given freely. Um, Cass is one of the first strangers to see past Dean's trauma and pain and self perceived brokenness and show him he's worth the risk and the effort and that he's not as damned as he thinks he is. And Cass's decision to stay and watch over Dean Winchester is, well, if you know, you know. So it took a little bit to get here and I hope it made at least a little bit of sense. I'm sorry. It's a little long, but I'm really excited to hear what your thoughts are on this as well. Um, And thanks so much for listening. Bye.
0: That was so good. It was amazing. That was really good.
1: There's so many things on this I want to touch on. Like I feel like I had to like, I should have been taking notes. I feel like there was a meme format several years ago. That was like it was one of those ones where people just kept subbing in new things. And it was the premise was just like, I can try this once. I won't get addicted. I'll be fine. And then cut to them being like fully ingrained in whatever that thing is. And I'm just picturing Cass being like, I can, you know, be friends with one human. I'll be fine. Cut to next panel and him just flipping off God like fuck you. I'm totally not your loyal soldier anymore. Like two seconds of Dean is all it took to try to go through this. I mean, like point by point. Uh, Yes, I mean, we've discussed it at length, but just Dean's inability to feel his own self-worth, his inability to understand that he has value and the extension of that being how he feels like his problems aren't worth sharing with somebody else because why try to fix them or burden somebody else? But then to have this magical man appear in his life who understands, knows it all and has made it very clear, even in the very short time I've had with him how much he knows Dean and how much he idolizes Dean in some senses that Dean has someone who can finally, he doesn't have to confide in this person already knows. Like I cannot wait to get more private conversations between Cass and Dean, I want to see that relationship flourish. And I'm not even talking about like the romanticized version of it. I mean, really just, I want to see the two of them have conversations more and more and more because every time they speak, I feel like one of them reveals some big truth to the other and like another piece of the puzzle is laid into their like combined character.
0: Yeah. And that's basically what's going to happen, you know, from now until season 15, frankly. Avril, this was such an amazing voicemail. Thank you so much. I stopped counting the number of later seasons, dog whistles, But I have to say that lights, lamp, and falling are sticking with me. So just saying, I, you know, did not go over my head. Thank you very much. We're certainly going to talk about resilience, even in part later this season, just because it's going to become a really important theme for Dean. And also as the seasons go by. And there's also one thing that you kind of said that sort of hit me like a ton of brick where I wasn't really expecting it. You said that refusing extraordinary measures to avoid going to hell makes sense for Dean. And again, if I'm transposing that to season 15, it hurts right in the feels. So thank you for that, I guess. (laughs) But thank you for the amazing voicemail, honestly. Like this was, this was great.
1: It was so good. Thank you. Now, as it is tradition, shall we discuss our reflections and calls to actions for this week? Certainly. I think it goes without saying that careful what you wish for might be a bit too obvious. So I want to dig a little bit deeper and actually look at how wishing can be harmful. So I feel like that careful what you wish for is kind of a double edged sword, as a metaphor goes or metaphor uh, saying. I'm not sure what the proper term for that is. Uh, it's not a metaphor. Uh, anyways, I'm getting sidetracked. But when we say careful what you wish for, it's the often the what we see in shows like this where, oh, no, the wish didn't go the way I wanted. And now I have to pay the consequences. And the lesson is to, you know, work for. But that's the thing. Is, it's the lesson part of it. It's the fact that it's not so much of the wish went sour. It's the wish took away what you had to do to get there. And suddenly, it does not have the same worth. All of this to kind of circle back to what I really want to reflect on, and the call to action I have for this week, which is: it's one thing to wish for something, but if it's something that you can achieve, then the wishing forward is only stopping you from achieving it. I will be very honest. I and I'm sure we. I'm sure it'll come up in questions on Discord or in other forums. We all have those little personal wishes for ourselves, but, you know, wishing to become a podcaster and voice actor only happens when you work at it. And, you know, surrounding myself with people who are even more serious than I am and more business minded than I am and have all these amazing ideas and thoughts like you and Rochelle, I'm able to actually achieve those goals You know, it's one thing to say, you know, I'll start a podcast one day or yeah, I know, I'll find the right thing. Like you can always find the excuse. You can always wish for something. It's that literal action that is going to make the difference. So next time you have a wish within the realm of reality, don't just wish it. Make it come true yourself. Be your own genie.
0: (laughs) Watch it because genies aren't wonderful in the supernatural. Thank you so much for sharing, Drew.
1: Thank you. And what would you like to uh, reflect on this week?
0: I think that for me, this episode was a reminder that setting boundaries is an act of self-love. And I'm really feeling called to be more conscious of my own boundaries, particularly when it comes to the internet and what people ask of me, because it's a show of love for myself.
1: That takes a lot of strength. I feel like the internet's a very difficult place to navigate as much as we've all grown up with it and have become citizens of the internet and really know our way around it. We can find ourselves getting into those traps. I mean, I've I've done that thing where I've written an entire response to somebody on Reddit and then gone, what am I doing and erased it? Like, I've caught myself, luckily, sometimes, not every time. But it's just, it's not engaging. It's setting those boundaries. It's knowing your limits and, you know, doing what's right for you. Yay. That's what I'm
0: gonna strive to do from now on.
1: (laughs) Yay, self-love.
0: Self-love.
1: You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigouroux, and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle for their generous support.
0: This week, we'd like to thank Avril for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using carryingwayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice.
1: And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com.
0: Carry on our Wayward friends. Three, two, one. one. I went really low. I could not sustain I that kind of low it. register.
1: <laughs> it was nice. We were. It was like we were competing. Eventually, we'd just hit like <sighs> a level that no one could hear. Yeah. <laughs> Seven, eight. <laughs>